Kathy Ackerman, and welcome to Sweet Tea and Strategy, a podcast produced by Ackerman Marketing and PR. 2020 has been a year unlike any other, so it is only fitting that we wrap up the year with a podcast that is unlike any other. This episode is a compilation of our favorite clips from all 21 episodes, some of which were recorded pre-COVID and others virtually recorded during COVID. We have talked to so many people from different industries, from tourism to food production to healthcare, and we've learned so much from doing so. We hope our listeners have too. If you want to listen to any of our full episodes, they are available on our website under the podcast tab, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We hope you enjoy, and we wish you a very happy and safe holiday. I know that the Chain Center in particular is near and dear to your heart. So talk about your induction and what that means to you. Well, I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, when I got that phone call, it just kind of made me go numb for a little bit because, I mean, a Hall of Fame in any in any situation is, is eternal. It's like being in a movie. And uh, I just, uh, you know, like I said, it made me reflect back on all the people that helped me even get to the position I'm in right now. So it's very, uh, very humbling, but uh, I'm very thankful for a lot of, a lot of situations that, that put me in this situation. I have great co-owners, like I said, my parents, my family, just uh, great opportunities that, you know, I was able to take advantage of. And so it's, it's quite an honor. As, uh, as for the Chain Center, again, being in this position, I'm able to be on pretty cool boards and different things that, that I feel passionate about that I can put, you know, some effort behind and help make it go. In this situation, it was an ice skating rink. I've never designed one before. And I was right in the mix of designing that arena, and it was a very cool process. But at the end of the day, it's, it's what it's about. It's for underprivileged kids that keep them off the streets. Again, it doesn't matter what color. It's just the fact that if, if they feel like this is a safe place and we've collectively built it as a board and a community, I mean, I'm very passionate about it. Like I said, growing up in Canada, you know, it was just a lot of just hockey stuff. It wasn't stuff that would get get us into trouble. So. You know, in the different places I've lived, I've seen different things, and and anytime you can be a part of something like this, obviously I want to be a part of that. And and I've come from great parents, and always do the right thing, kind of thing. And, and it's just uh, it's neat to be a part of. It's neat to see the kids come there and just know that they're they're in a safe place, and right. it's, it's a fun place for them. So great, it's it's great. I'm very honored to be a part of that. I saw a survey not too long ago about something like 82% of top golf guests say that playing uh, there influenced their decision to play golf. How do you think about this multidimensional fan engagement experience, kind of the convergence of sports and online gaming? Yeah, I could touch on, on Top Golf for a minute. Top Golf has really increased um, so many things around the golf game, it's brought new people to the game. Uh, it's brought kids, it's brought women, it's brought, um, it's much more than golf. It's really bringing people together in a shared event, which is great. Um, but you do get to swing a golf club, and it's great for someone that hasn't played the game to experience that fun. Uh, trying to bring fun to, the, to, to golf. A lot of people feel like golf is not the most fun sport. Yeah, if you do it at Top Golf, you'll have a lot of fun. From a, from a, gambling perspective the business has changed so dramatically and so quickly 
I remember I met with uh, DraftKings probably, geez, about five years ago. And it was such a early business model. And once legalization of the of uh, gambling has taken place in state after state, it has taken off. And no question, it's going to revolutionize how you watch the game, how you invest in games. Uh, you can almost gamble on every play. Um, so fantasy sports has become, you know, a big part of the fans' um, time. But betting on each play and betting on each week and being able to do it off your phone is certainly a game changer. Dangerous. My kids, I'm worried about. I've talked to them about how easy it is to to gamble and spend money so quickly that hopefully they'll keep a clear head about it. Um, but it's become really easy to do. And you just put your credit card on these apps. It becomes pretty easy, pretty easy to lose money quick. I guess pretty easy to make money. That's true. Uh, I just tell them to keep a level head about it um, because it, it is. It's And they're getting into every sport and it's becoming really easy to do. Is there another sport that you feel maybe not poking through that maybe, but but maybe you feel like is behind soccer well, I, in terms of the globalization, maybe from uh, the U.S. to another country or or, or vice versa? I, I, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum and not that I have a, I don't have a fully formed point of view on it, but I'm fascinated by esports. Um, I'm And the reason I'm fascinated by it is that if you, um, kind of watch how this generation of sports fans consumes media. Um, I think that holds a lot of lessons for traditional sports and not so much maybe the competition, but how the new generation of sports fans consumes um, media. And like when you look at Twitch, you know, these influencers on what was largely a, an esports channel are now applying those same techniques to coverage of other, let me say it more important topics like the, the recent debates. Mm-hmm. Um, there were cohorts mm-hmm. and streaming shares that were applying those same media consumption techniques to politics. And I think they'll apply it to right. um, broader entertainment areas. So I think there's, there's probably a lot of sports studying Twitch, but watching what the esports influencers do, what the publishers are doing, has is going to have a lot of lessons for all of us, I think. It's hard to tell where that's going to go, but there's something there for yeah. sure. Oh yeah, um, it's it's an incredibly engaging experience to kind of watch a competition, but watch it with a streaming share with an influencer. It's a very very different experience than listening to your TV or even listening to the radio or or you know following it on Twitter. When you're on Twitch, it's that perfect storm of fan interaction, mm-hmm. influencer, and also competition. What about what's happening in the rural areas with lack of access to local hospitals and all of that? Uh, that's one of my great concerns. And uh, and I would say this, uh, I guess I'm one of the things I hope to do now that I'm a step down and retire from PYA is spend more time writing. And I really want to write a series of editorials about what we're going to be facing. And one of those is the coming, if we think it's a challenge today, it's going to be an even greater challenge tomorrow. Right. And one of the things that I'm seeing in pricing models by the insurance companies, 
I think are going to be it's uh, some of these so-called shared savings programs. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be with their market power. It's going to be a real threat to the small rural hospitals who have no market power. Right. They don't have a constituency a constituency to advocate for them. They don't have the market presence. They don't have the money. To demand. They don't have the money. They don't have the expertise. Right. You know they don't have the talent to go up against those with such enormous market power. Mm-hmm. And so the the crisis for the uh, small rural hospital is going to grow, in mm-hmm. my opinion, mm-hmm. if we don't take some steps to address that. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of voices saying the need, but there's got to be a lot of willpower to help make that happen. And, and that, that is so critical for every state, but particularly a state like Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, when a local hospital fails, that's I'm in every community that's either the largest or probably the worst, the second largest employer in that community. I'm sure. So it's loss of jobs, it's a loss of opportunity, mm-hmm. and so it has a huge adverse impact on that community. Right, a real ripple area. effect. And the ripple effect is yeah. enormous. Right. And so that's that's something that deserves a great deal of attention mm-hmm. uh, in every state and federally. Patients need to know. I mean, patients as consumers of healthcare, I think, are confused. They're frightened. Uh, there's a lot of, of movement within that world that they don't understand. What do they need to understand first and foremost when they, especially when they walk into an emergency room? Well, I think about that in terms of my own family, and you know, I have uh, adult children mm-hmm. and I have young adult grandchildren. So, what I think they ought to know is several things. First of all, everybody should have a primary care doctor. Right. And that primary care doctor ought to be the first line of defense mm-hmm. and the first line of offense. Right. You know, regularly seeing your primary care physician. And when I say that, I generally mean family practice, internal medicine, pediatrics, or OBGYN. The OBGYN docs provide a ton of primary care services to their patients, way more than just obstetric and gynecologic right. things. Uh, women tend to utilize their OBGYNs for lots of things. So we tend to think of that them as providing a lot of primary care. So first of all, you need a primary care doctor. And that's both to prevent a problem that drives you to the ER. And if you have a moment of question where, do I need to go to the ER or not? Now, if you're having the worst headache of your life and you've never had it before, you need to go to the ER. You might be having an aneurysm. Right. If you're having crushing chest pain that's going down your left arm and you're short of breath and nauseated, you need to call an ambulance to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you've had abdominal pain for four hours and it's kind of funny and vague and I'm Mm -hmm. a little queasy, that's probably a call to your primary care doctor to say, mm-hmm. hey, what do you think about this and where should I go? And they might direct you to their office or their own urgent care or to the ER. So that to me is that we're all about the critical role of the primary care doctor. How many, what's the percentage of the population that you think has a primary care doctor? Well, there's two answers to that. Uh, today, apparently only about half the people in the country have a primary care doctor is what I would guess. And the bigger issue is, can you get in to see them? Yes. They're all booked up. Yes. They're all busy. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, most of them are underpaid. Mm-hmm. There's not great reimbursement, especially for pediatrics mm-hmm. and not great for some of the other primary care specialties. So the reality is it's very hard to get in to see your primary care doctor right. in a lot of practices, right. even if you have one. Forty years of, of working in healthcare, and you have a, a background of coming from finance. So, what is the biggest change you've seen in the healthcare industry? That's a great question, and I would say uh, there's a few observations. Number one is that 
and I, I can be very critical of the provider sector of our industry, and that's what you know we're responsible for is the provider sector. Um, but I can criticize all sectors of the industry, whether it's the payer sector or the manufacturer sector. But let's focus on the providers for a second. And I think going back 40 years ago, we were not very good stewards of our sector of our industry. And I would say that the product we delivered probably could have been a lot better. So when, when I... When I refer to being a good steward of our sector of the industry, what I'm really speaking to is making sure that the quality of the product we're delivering is a valuable product. And I defined that earlier being quality, safe care, that has a great experience of those involved in that process and doing that all efficiently and effectively. And as we look at our industry, we have been resistant to using techniques that other industries have used to drive quality and, and, and or drive value. And we are now embracing that and we are now being more transparent with our quality metrics. And I think that is good for everyone involved. It's good for the patients, obviously, but it's also good for the, the, the those folks that are involved in delivering the care. And it gives them a better understanding of how they're performing and where the opportunities to improve are. And I know that just about every healthcare provider um, that I know is focused on improving their outcomes and improving the value that they deliver to their patients. I believe that we're doing great work in our clinical integration journey in trying to coordinate the care across an entire episode. Um, so that all the providers are, are working on a common and agreed-upon care plan that's evidence-based and patient-centric, and that our patients are engaged in their process as well. Now talk to us about, you know, what do you hope viewers get out of this series of stories? Initially, I want viewers to know that vaccination research is, is by no means new. This has been going on for decades and decades and decades. These, these processes, these, these human trials, think about it. We had to have clinical trials in order to have a polio vaccine. We had to have these in order to have a flu vaccine. We had to have all these different trials to have these vaccines that have saved countless lives. So this process is essential. So number one, I want to share with our viewers that this is part of the scientific process in order to have a vaccine that will protect lives, hopefully save lives. I want them, number one, to have that information. Number two, I want them to have right information the correct information as opposed to some of the crazy things that I've heard along the way that, you know, they're, they're going to give you, uh, shoot you up with a, a microchip or something like that. That is indeed not the case. So to be very transparent in the process to show people this is how it's done. And number three, to, to shine the light that, you know, this is one thing. We all have to find something that we can do to to get through uh, this pandemic to to i don't know do our part whether it be being a part of a, a vaccine trial or taking care of 
of a neighbor who is homebound or reaching out to someone with a phone call. We can all do something to get through this point in time. So what is that something for you? You have to decide, but that was the something for me. A project like this has to have safety at its very core in terms of the work that you're doing. Talk about the safety record a little bit on this project. Yeah. Well, I'll start with um, the, the hazards that we're managing. Right. This is some of the most hazardous work that, that our, work, our workforce, our workers can face uh, probably in any industry. Uh, we have significant industrial safety hazards because of the physical status of the buildings. You know, they've been excessed, they're deteriorated, right. things of that nature. Uh, so life safety is, is, a, is a predominant focus at all times. That's referred to as industrial safety. Uh, we obviously have the nuclear component of it. So radiological risk mm -hmm. is significant and comes in many forms, and we see all those forms. Uh, and then there is the whole chemical toxicological aspect of it, whether it's asbestos or mercury or lead or cadmium or beryllium, or, you can go on and on. And so the integrated hazard suite that we face is significant. So uh, we have to have a very different approach to basic safety and health. Yes. And so we implement what we call a culture of excellence uh, in which we culturally, more than just program and process, but culturally develop our organization with an understanding and appreciation that every task, every activity, every time could be done safely. So if you're in a 5,000 step procedure mm -hmm. or, or work package, if you apply that mindset to every activity, every step, every task, every time, mm -hmm. you will be at a zero injury state regardless of what the hazard is. And, and what's great about the culture of excellence from my point of view is it is associated that to performance. So high-performing safety is high-performance, high-performing productivity. So how does what you're doing impact economic development? How does it become a true economic driver? Well, I think we're, we're really fortunate. There's probably 10 years of studies that you can, and you see more and more of them on quality of life and, and what we do being defined as quality of life. So simple things like people will pay $9,000 more for a house near a park. Right. Your home is worth 25% more near uh, within a mile. Um, the kids, kids, a playground near where, uh, within a mile of where a child lives increases their likelihood by 300% that they'll use. That's amazing. Parents that, so across, there's enough data, National Association of Realtors and Home Builders Association both have done studies that said greenways are one of the top three requested amenities when someone's looking for a home. So we're really lucky across both workforce, livability, health, um, individual preference, all of the statistics point to greenways, parks, make a difference in where people choose to locate themselves or a business. And, and businesses now know it they need to be where their employees want to live. Right. And right. so all, you know, if, and in a conversation recently with a new chamber, work, the workforce is the critical issue right now. And so making people happy where they live, it's kind of a simple thing, but... <laughs>
about your environmental story. I think you've got some interesting facts and figures there in terms of, of your contributions from an environmental standpoint. Yeah, it, you know, I, and I think it starts with the bean itself. Uh, I think the bean likes nitrogen in the soil where, you know, some corn takes it out. So if you think about uh, farmers rotate crops, so you put, you know, uh, you want to you want to rotate a bean crop in with a corn crop for the nitrogen. So you have less chemicals on the soil. Um, you know, the amount of water that it takes. So if you think about the amount of protein that you have to feed a pig or a chicken or a cow and the amount of water that it takes to grow that protein to feed it to the pig or the cow or the chicken, and then the process, you know, it's just much more sustainable just to feed people the protein, the vegetable protein. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a great sustainability story from a can standpoint, 70 over 70, 75% of all cans, you know, get recycled. 37, 38% of the steel that we, or the cans we use come from recycled steel. So um, that's a, you know, really uh, telling story. And, um, and then if you think about the waste, you know, if you think about the water that we use, we have a water reuse facility. So we pull basically spring water in, run it through the plants, recycle it, and we take the, the natural gas that comes from the wastewater, we recycle that natural gas to, to go fire our boilers, and then we take the water and, and spray it back on the field so it goes back, you know, gets absorbed into the, uh, into yeah. the water table. So, so it's sort of a perfect storm in terms of an environmental success story. Yeah, very, very environmentally friendly. you've spent a lot of time building the culture here and spending a lot of focus on the team. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit. You've mentioned it in terms of acquisitions, but mm -hmm. what does teamwork and culture look like yeah. at SmartBank? I'll tell you, it, it, cult, the, the culture that we're, that, that we're building, and it, and it is a constant, it's a constant effort, uh, uh, is probably the thing that I'm most proud of that we that we have built in this company or building in this company because like I said you never you never get you never get to the finish line uh, uh, it's it's been so great uh, you know we started out when we started the bank back in 2007 uh, and I'll never forget I was a good friend of both of ours Jeff Walpert uh, the yes. peddler of Park Grill restaurants in Gatlinburg and great friend one of our founding organizing directors and a, a gosh a long time friend of mine mentor of mine Jeff and I were talking about it after we'd been open a couple of months we'd got the bank open and the bank was doing really well and we were performing we were growing loans and deposits and everything but it just there's just something that what it wasn't right and we'd recruited some great folks from a bunch of banks and in the community to help us start it and and uh, but it just something just wasn't sinking and and I'll never forget I was sitting there, I was having lunch with Jeff and I was telling him about this I'm saying gosh everything's are, the numbers are great but there's something just not sinking right and he goes he goes well have you told them what you wanted it to look like and I said no and he goes well heck they can't read your mind wow. you know and it was and it was just and that and a light bulb went uh -huh. on and and, great and, and and I said you know what you're right I just assumed that everybody knew what I was thinking right. and they didn't right. and so so we at that point we started having culture meetings on a weekly basis as we built the bank and it really helped set the foundation that has been so critical to what we've done today and we have we have a culture team that meets uh, uh, on a you know on a uh, 
usually on a, we have typically have a monthly basis now where we get together. It's, it, we pull folks from all of our different geographies, folks from our executive team, other managers in our company, and we talk about how do you how do you continue to build the culture as you grow. bit, if you would, about what our state is doing to help expand economic opportunities in the many rural counties that comprise the state of Tennessee? Excellent question. Of course, as you know, across our 95 counties, 80 of our counties are designated as rural. There are federal means tests that identify the lowest 10% of all counties across the U.S., and then there is a second tranche, the lowest 25%. This is based on income, poverty, unemployment. And these are all federal uh, data points. And so actually Randy Boyd, who was my predecessor, deserves an enormous amount of credit for developing a whole host of rural initiatives. And so I, I can just simply say those initiatives have obviously allowed us to have more tools in the chest to not only help these rural communities, but also to help companies come to the rural communities. Now, you're going to say, well, why would a company want to come to a rural community versus an urban market? And when it comes to advanced manufacturing and the wages provided, these large and medium-sized companies do not want to compete with the labor shed pricing in and around these metropolitan urban cities and communities. So what they do is they find a really attractive rural community. Now that rural community, Kathy, has to have access to the interstate, has to have access to a workforce, and has to have access to basically their materials uh, and their supply chain. Even the nicest, coolest city, if that rural community is over an hour from the closest interstate, that community could have, you know, PhDs and have the greatest workforce, but because the transportation cost of raw material in and the finished goods trucking out are so expensive, uh, there are just some communities that have beautiful natural assets that just will not, you know, be landing those large manufacturing opportunities. Do you, ever, do you see our state ever moving more in the direction of increasing the incentive opportunity? I think. You know, I, I I think that we definitely can. You know, I don't believe in I don't believe in putting large amounts of money towards you know these types of incentives. You know, you have Georgia, which as I think has put something like almost a billion dollars you know into their program. Mm -hmm. I think obviously taxpayer money should be used for other things than really film or television. But what I but, but the way I do look at it is that. You know, right now, you know, we at least need to have enough funding to compete, you know, with on a what I would say we're we're a tier two state. You know, we're not New York or Los Angeles, but we do have the infrastructure to support, you know, moderate productions here. And so I think that, you know, right now we're severely underfunded for what our workforce and our infrastructure capacity is. I think that we could be, you know, funded up to meet what that capacity is. Um, and then that would help us stabilize and, and grow. And that's the way that, you know, at least in the conversations that I have with legislatures or, you know, with other government leaders is I, I try to shift this conversation to 
these are folks that are working in transportation. These are folks that have that they're, they're electricians. Uh, they're driving trucks. You know, they're you know they're involved in textiles or construction, or they own a small business. You know, which you know can service the end of the the movie industry because the film and television industry is so broad mm -hmm. with what it touches. What else are you, are there any challenges that you've heard maybe uh, so far as a community, maybe as a chamber about, you know, how do you think about communications uh, to members of the chamber and mm -hmm. advocating for members on their behalf? Talk about communicating on uh, from the chamber's perspective. Yeah, so it, it actually is. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. It is, I don't know if it's a challenge, but it's one of the things we have heard in in have meetings with with the stakeholders here and it's not unique to this chamber but you're trying to find that balance of ensuring that that your members your investors stakeholders understand and appreciate the value that you are delivering yeah. in your work and through to try to fulfill your mission but at the same time not becoming braggadocious not taking credit for for all these things that happen because none, none of this th none of these Things happen in a vacuum. Right. You just can't do it. Yeah. Um, so that balance, again, is not unique to us, but it's something I think is maybe a theme that has kind of come out of the discussion so far. Um, you know, we are a regional organization. Our, our mission is to drive regional economic prosperity, not drive regional economic prosperity in Knoxville or Knox County. It's, right. it's the entire region. And that make, makes it a very vast area of which to communicate. So we do have to make sure and ensure, if you will, that we are communicating effectively, that we are doing a lot of listening because communication, as you well know, is mm -hmm. not a one-way street. Um, you know, so I need to know, are we listening enough? Or are, we, uh, are we putting out the messages say, look, we're here to help. Now, that may be just stay out of your way. Right. That may be the biggest help we can provide for you. And let's be fair, it would be the easiest thing for us to do. <laughs> um, so, so that's, if anything, any theme that has kind of come out of these, these first two weeks, that's really been the one okay. focused on. So you, you have, uh, <clears throat> you, you kind of have one wish that you, that you wish the industry would kind of move towards. Industry is a big term, but whether it be uh, regulations associated with the industry or technology uh, that your firm's pursuing that you don't have now, where, where's a magic wand, you know, what would you, what would you kind of lay over? <laughs> Shut off the internet? Shut off the internet, fair <laughs> enough, all right. Pen and paper. So, so I, I, there, there's two things. One is security isn't as spooky as everybody thinks it is. And, and I've been preaching this now for 20 years. Whatever you do in your physical life to protect yourself, whether it be how you protect your valuables at home, your family, mm -hmm. you know, these things are, are really important. Do the same thing in business. What's most important? Break it down to just a very pragmatic approach. Start with that. And like, hey, if somebody got this, I wouldn't be happy about it. But it's not the end of the world. Right. So I, I think that's one. And I, I, so I think it's just starting with, with that pragmatic approach of, of, of just getting a security policy. The number of companies I walk into pre-coming here in my past jobs and somebody's like, oh, we're servicing, you know, Fortune 500 companies. You're like, do you have a security policy? No. You know, are you sharing passwords? Yes. 
what are you showing? What, what, what are you showing a man? Well, we're storing, you know, they're saving them to Chrome browser and they're, and it's like, you're doing hundreds of millions of dollars of business, but you're mm-hmm. still operating as a small business because, and well, we don't want to do security because it's going to slow us down. You have to stop. Nobody would go, you know, nobody would go drive a car without brakes. And so sometimes you have to go slower to go faster. And, and, and the problem is, as we've said, you have to have, you have to have the Maserati of security. No, you just have to have mm-hmm. a basic framework. My wish would be is that we're building security into the fabric and the framework that we're moving forward with. So with the higher education ecosystem, if you will, now populated with almost every size and shape of institution, public, private, religiously affiliated, specialty area focused, online, virtual, et cetera. How would you describe Tennessee Tech's place within that sort of ever-growing, ever-changing landscape of higher education? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. The, the, okay, so the way I describe it, higher education is a very competitive marketplace. Yes. That's, that's another way of saying what you just you just commented on. It's, it's very diverse. There are different institutions. So, I mean, we're really blessed, particularly here in, in the United States, that students have a lot of options. Uh, they can choose a private school, they can choose a public institution, large, small, medium, you know, they can pick the environment they want to go to uh, for the most, it's a free market. So students largely uh, vote with their feet. Mm-hmm. They, they go to the campus that they're uh, attracted to. And, and I often tell students that, that universities have personalities a lot like people do. Mm-hmm. And so you want to, you want to find one that matches your personality, that, right. that is a good fit for you. So in terms of Tennessee Tech, uh, I, I realize I'm biased, but I think Tennessee Tech's personality uh, as a campus fits a lot of students. We have a unique personality that is warm, friendly, welcoming. Uh, size-wise, I like to say that we're, we're big enough to be meaningful, but small enough to be personal. Right. And so it, 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 it feels good to a lot of students. Now, I'm not so uh, biased or naive to think that it's, it's the best fit for everybody. It's not. Uh, we think it's a great fit for a lot of students. I mean, we like to say that, that Tennessee Tech is real. We, we, we provide a real education for real people who want a real career. So what worries you and excites you the most about higher education? Um, what worries me is that there's a lot of a lot of the public that have lost trust in higher ed. Mm-hmm. And that makes me sad because higher education, college is where kids grow up. It's where they start to figure out where they might fit in the world. And who they are. Who they are. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's less about what they major in than kind of person they become right so if they're if parents are losing confidence in the institutions that enable that that we've got to work on that so that worries me mm-hmm. we've got to regain that trust which I think we can uh, and that's not aimed at University of Tennessee that's just higher ed in general right what excites me is that I think that higher ed is the place first of all education is the key to the growing economic divide so if we do our job and educate more kids, we're going to help that big problem in society. I heard Governor Haslam talk about that not long ago. That's the biggest problem we face mm-hmm. in Tennessee and in this country. So education's really the 
the path through that. Mm-hmm. So that excites me, and, and I think Tennessee has a unique opportunity. I think young people, they value experiences, so I think this, this idea about truly making the volunteer experience mm-hmm. compelling, mm-hmm. Uh, that'll attract kids from lots of places. And you were involved in an, an exciting announcement last week with the Knoxville Promise Program. Tell yes, us a little that's bit about right. That. Yeah, so one of the challenges that, that everybody has all across the country, and, and we do too in the, in the state of Tennessee with the Tennessee Promise, and with students at, at, at all levels, which regardless of which way they get into college, is to make sure they graduate. Right. So at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, we have the best graduation rate in the state in public universities. 72.5% of our kids that come will graduate in six years. I'm at UT Martin and UT Chattanooga. It's 47.7%. That's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the best in the in the state. If you think about it, that means that one out of every two that go to those schools fail to graduate. And Knoxville, one out of every four fail to graduate. For everyone that fails to graduate, that's a, a dream of a better job, a better career, a better life that, that we failed. So we want to do a better job with that. Jim Haslam uh, believes that also that we need to make that make, make it, it, it more... Uh, likely more students will succeed. So we donated $6.2 million. Another organization that I chair, Tennessee Achieves, is going to administer the program over the next two years in Knox County, and it's going to consist of providing extra mentors, um, extra financial support in the in the uh, uh, the means of form of an extra $250 per semester for uh, textbooks. It's going to include a, a bridge program between the, the freshman and the sophomore year so that more students uh, can transition successfully from that first to second year and all sorts of other wraparound services to make sure that more students from Knox County, uh, when they go to college, will graduate from college. If it does well, which it should, uh, then we're going to use that model to roll out across the state. Um, so you've been around for 26 years, the aquarium has been. Uh, how do you keep things fresh and repeat customers? Because I know a lot of your customer base is this region. Uh, yeah, we focus a lot on the guest experience, right. and uh, we do rankings, and we are constantly in the top two or three or one in guest satisfaction surveys of any uh, aquarium in the United States. So how do you do that? We do a lot of training, we do a lot of hand-holding, and we talk about it all the time. And we know that everybody is involved in that guest experience from the housekeeping staff to security to, uh, like the area around the aquarium is a city park, but we have kids that get injured. So most all of our security officers are trained EMTs, and so we take care of all those kids that fall and scratch a knee or whatever in the plaza. and. and then we'll call and check up on them the next day to make sure everything turned out okay. But we constantly strive to uh, make sure we're a good place. We have worked hard. Like yesterday, we spent an hour and a half yesterday afternoon uh, on cultural competencies for the Latino community and learning. So I got to learn what alligator and fish and are in Spanish. And pescado is the fish on a menu, but pests is a fish in the, in the river, river. There so, you go. There you go. Uh, which I never knew there were two different words for a fish like that but uh, so that was fun we, we were the first attraction in Tennessee to be accredited for autistic children right. Right. and so we have noise canceling headphones we have weighted blankets we have fidget toys uh, we have signs that are 
this room is loud, this room is quiet, and yes. so, and that really helps uh, the guests feel much more welcome. I've always appreciated the close attention to, to detail that you place on the guest experience and how they interact with Titanic Museum attractions. So if you could only name one, what is the driving factor behind your continued success at Titanic Museum attraction? Well, sometimes when I'm out um, speaking I, and I'm talking to a group, I'll say to them, what comes first, your guests or your employees? And by the base of the, of the hands that go up either way, I'll tell you how my philosophy is it's employees. If you have happy employees, if they, if we set the expectation levels, if we educate them, if we nurture them, that's my proudest moment because if I have happy crew, then I'm gonna have happy guests. If they have the answers, they don't feel like, well, I didn't know the answer to that. So we have an 8.30 meeting every day. The objective for that meeting is to go over what happened the day before, what's happening today, what are the specials, what special groups are coming in today, and everybody knows that when a group comes in, we say their name. So by educating the crew, it makes our guests have a better experience. Without the guest experience, we have nothing, you know. We, re we rely on taking care of our guests. You know, maybe they've had a bad day. Maybe the, tra the traffic is horrible. Um, so we always say to our, our crew members, play to the child first. Because if the child is happy, then mom's shoulders relax. Right. And goodness, dad is very happy that those <laughs> two are happy. So, so we, they're, they're all trained every day, you know, how best to facilitate so our, crew, so our guests can have a good experience. Anything else that you want to talk about that uh, adds to this absolutely fascinating business story so far? One of the biggest reasons that, our, that, that Old Smoky grew like it did is that, that we benefited from the millions of visitors that come to Gallenberg every year. So our, our, uh, when we started Old Smoky, it was, it was simply a, a retail store, something that, that I thought that we would offer for, for tourists, uh, a souvenir to take back home. And um, what, what we found was the ability to interact with our customer and to, uh, to, to really cultivate the relationship and let them experience our brand in the way that we wanted it to be experienced. They were having fun on vacation. They were enjoying our product on vacation. And then what happened was they would go back to Ohio, Kentucky, California, wherever they, they were visiting from, and they would, they would want to relive that in some way. So I, I think what we saw was... Um, a demand that was driven by these people who had come and visited our, our property and enjoyed our products. They go to the, the local liquor store and they asked for it again because they, they wanted to, you know, they wanted to kind of relive that, uh, that moment. They wanted to enjoy that same product. And I think that for, for all brands, uh, if you can, if you can capture that, if you can, if you can interact with your, your consumer mm -hmm. and, and create an experience that, that lives beyond the moment. I think that that's something that, uh, that, that really uh, remains a goal of mine, you know, in, in everything that we do. And it's, it's easy to talk about the brand and the brand experience, but I, I think that when you really talk about the relationship that you're, you're cultivating with your consumer, I, I think that's, that's the, uh, um, that's really, I, I think the best you can do. I think that, uh, you know, if they're, if they're sampling your product in a grocery store or a liquor store or a restaurant, you, you have no control over that experience, but if you're if you're able to bring them into your home, and you're able to to uh, create that experience in a way that you know makes it positive, it, it's a, it's amazing how much 
benefit uh, a business can can uh, can gain from from that interaction.